Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're going to talk about something people have been begging me to talk about forever, and that is the history of DNC 132, the famed polygamy section, or if you're active LDS, you might see it as the celestial marriage or uh, marriage revelation. This is going to be a long episode, so we might break this into two parts. This is by far one of the most contested, controversial, and probably definitive revelations of Mormonism. Joseph Smith's biographer, Fawn Brody, points out that this revelation doesn't only provide the foundations for Mormon polygamy, but it provides other foundational Mormon doctrines that are really unique to Mormonism. She says, quote, that it's the most epoch-making revelation. And I think, I think that that's true. If you look at this idea of struggle and persecution and controversy and standing for truth and righteousness, this all comes from this doctrine. Mormonism didn't really have very many controversial doctrines until this came out. In fact, the Book of Mormon was wildly popular until rumors of plural marriage start swirling. So we're going to get into the history of that. But first, we have to start to define the Mormon books. For outsiders who are not Mormon, as you know, we have many publications. But the important ones for the episodes are going to be the Book of Mormon, often called by outsiders as the Mormon Bible. And Mormons take great offense to that. We consider the Bible to be the Bible and the Book of Mormon to be the Book of Mormon. And the two go hand in hand and each tell a different story of different people. We also have what's called the Articles of Marriage, which for a time was part of our Doctrine and Covenants, which is another portion that we're going to talk about, the Doctrine and Covenants. And then we have the Book of Commandments. And in these publications, we have Joseph Smith really sort of playing with the idea of how to get Scripture out to people, how to make commandments and rules and structure in Scripture. And some of them will last and some of them will not last. And now it's up for church leaders to figure out over time which ones count as doctrine and which ones don't count. And as you're going to see, that is going to change. Let's start with the Book of Mormon on this topic. This is important because the Book of Mormon explicitly forbids polygamy. Critics will bring up one of the chapters in the Book of Mormon in Jacob. It's the chapter heading is called Jacob. Jacob 2, 24 through 29 states, quote, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. So here we have the Lord saying to readers of the Book of Mormon that concubines and many wives are abominable. The Lord finds it abominable, which is a thing that you don't do. It's not godly. It's in Mormon interpretation, abomination, which is different than sort of biblical interpretation, but but also similar. It's sinful. The scripture goes on to say, quote, Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore, I, the Lord, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old, Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord, for there shall be not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore, this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. Okay. So the foundational, the foundational book for the Mormon movement, the Book of Mormon, explicitly forbades polygamy. I mean, it, it doesn't just tiptoe around it. It calls it a whoredom. It equates it with a whoredom. 
It claims to compromise the chastity of women, which is a big deal in Mormon purity culture. And it says that God finds it sinful and an abomination and that not only can men not have multiple wives, he can't have any concubines and he doesn't want people to do what they did in olden times. So here we have the Lord relating this to the Bible. Do not bring back this thing. Now, Mormonism is a restorationist movement, which means Joseph sought to restore things from the Bible. And of course, this is going to become a justification for polygamy later on. But in this scripture, I think the most powerful part is not necessarily the talk of wives, but it's the idea of this is the one thing we don't do from the Bible. This is the thing you're not supposed to do that men of old did. Now, Mormons today, Latter-day Saints, would actually say that these scriptures I just read to you doesn't forbid polygamy. It actually gives a condition to polygamy. In fact, it's the explanation why the LDS church doesn't practice polygamy now. It's right here in the scriptures. It says that at some time, the Lord commands it because he commanded it in the Bible. And for the people of the Book of Mormon, it was forbidden. And now, you know, it came back for Brigham Young and Joseph Smith's time, and then it went away again. This is to them is the justification. It's the reasoning behind why polygamy is permitted only at certain times. Now, I want to talk about how polygamy even enters the scene at all in this early time. So, you know, Joseph Smith in the early 1830s has this book. He's talking about this book with people. It's said that he gave a revelation to W.W. Phelps concerning the Lamanite doctrine. And we talked about this in one of the very early episodes of the podcast. You can look up the Lamanite revelation where Joseph Smith is said to have sanctioned perhaps concubines among Lamanite women who, would, who we would have seen as Native Americans at the time. But Joseph Smith is clearly being influenced by other ways of thinking. And we've talked about this, of course, in this podcast and in the Color of Heaven podcast. But I want to talk about it a little bit more before we get into more of the history of DNC 132. There are several theories of why polygamy sort of starts, you know, engaging Joseph Smith, or at least in his mind. British scholar Sheldon Kent calls Smith an a cultural bricolier. Now, bricolier is a French word meaning to engage in bricolage or to construct a project from all the materials around you. So Kent contends that Smith sort of gathers materials or ideas from all around him. It's like if you're starting a project and you say, I want to do a do-it-yourself project in my house. What do I have around me to start from? And this is what Smith does with Mormonism. And so I'm going to let um, him talk about some of the influence. Of course, there are so many influences that scholars give Joseph Smith to work with. You know, there's the Shakers and the Campbellite movement, the Millerites. Of course, uh, Masonry has a huge impact on him. There's the legacy of the Radical Reformation. You know, um, the Owenite excitement of the early 19th century is existing. And there's Solomon Spalding and Emanuel Swedenborg and all of these different influences. Sheldon Kent is going to talk to us about uh, Emanuel Swedenborg. So you can see how these ideas are starting to sort of pop up in Joseph Smith's consciousness. And maybe this is why we see it appear in Jacob. Let's go to Sheldon Kent. Okay, Sheldon. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Lindsay. So Sheldon, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're studying. So I'm currently studying towards a PhD in religious studies at Lancaster University in the UK. My undergraduate degree was in was in religious studies as well, so I've I've got a you know continuous line there of of sort of academic study in in religious studies. Uh, but my my thesis at the moment 
that I'm working on is looking at uh, Joseph Smith as an acultural bricoleur. Um, so I'm looking at uh, a lot of the, the, the different influences on, on Joseph Smith and, and his religion building imagination. Fantastic. And you gave a really great presentation. You've given several presentations, but you just gave one in Lancaster comparing Joseph Smith to Emanuel Swedenborg. And that's what mm-hmm. I want you to talk about. I know I can link to his presentation. It's a long presentation, so you can get sort of the, the details that we're going to skip over here. But I want you to give us just sort of a brief 101 on the connections with Joseph Smith being influenced by Swedenborg. As I say earlier in this episode, I explain what you mean by bricolier. It's someone who engages in bricolage. Am I, say, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, bricolier, yeah. It's... Uh... It's well. It's uh, for for me. It's um. It's a term that I've borrowed from Claude Levi Strauss. That basic basically it means sort of do it yourself. Yeah, and so this would be one of the tools or influences or ideas that would have been around during the time, the writings and influences of Emanuel Swedenborg. So tell us yeah. a little bit about who Swedenborg was, and then let's get into the ways that he influences Joseph Smith's theology. Sure. Swedenborg was born on the 29th of January, 1688 in Stockholm, Sweden. I won't go into too much detail about his, his upbringing or anything like that, but he he basically, he, he's, his work was originally based in the sciences. Um, so he, he spent most of his life up until his late 50s just working in the sciences. And it was around about 1743, I believe, that he started to experience visions. So, yeah, in, in around about 1743, he, he started to, to, to have visions and, um, and hear angelic voices. And then by 1744, he started to produce writings which he claimed were under the direction of angels. So that, that really marked a, a massive shift away from his work in the natural sciences and uh, towards more sort of otherworldly sort of spiritual focused sort of works. So he kept various diaries and he started producing a lot of, of, of different um, different works. So there's there's the main one was Arcana Celestia. Um, and then the one that, that really kind of was influential in, in uh, 19th century, 18th and 19th century America was Heaven and Hell. Um, which goes into various sort of descriptions of multiple heavens. So, but there was there was others as well. So there's New Jerusalem and its heavenly heavenly doctrine, divine love and wisdom, conjugal love, and there was there was Earths in the universe as well, which was which is quite interesting. Okay, um, so one of the ones that kind of blew my mind, and I I'd known a little bit about Swedenborg, but I didn't. I think I just didn't pay a lot of attention to him. Was the idea of the structure of heaven. Which is very much, you know, we talk about Mormonism as this radical theology, but Joseph Smith isn't the only one thinking of these ideas. Explain Swedenborg's makeup of heaven. In his book, Heaven and Hell, he outlines a heaven structure. So there's three three degrees in in Swedenborg's heaven, um, view of heaven. He also has three sort of degrees of hell as well, which is a which is a bit different. But his heaven is um, is yeah, it's three different degrees, and then the the highest degree is the celestial kingdom, um, and within that there is also three 
other degrees. So that's uh, that's very there's a, there's a distinct parallel there between Swedenborg and and Joseph Smith. And talk about this idea of conjugal love that you mentioned. Okay, he he departs. So it's not quite the same as as Joseph Smith's view. Swedenborg's view is that that you need to be um, married to get into the highest form of heaven. But his is very kind of to get to the highest form of heaven, you have to be. It's just it's um, just a man and wife. So there isn't any polygamy in the the highest form of heaven, but there is polygamy in lower forms of heaven. So, but but to 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 get to the highest, like I said, you have to be you have to be married. But his view of kind of marriage relationships is is quite interesting. Swedenborg basically explained that the mutual and reciprocal love of sex remains with it, with human beings after death. So he he says that that marriage love is the very plane into which the divine flows. Um, marriage is is necessary to heavenly existence, and Swedenborg tends to treat it as synonymous with heaven itself. So those who have no partner in this life will find one in the next. Uh, so marriage in heaven will involve an ever closer union between man and wife. And it will be egalitarian in nature. According to Swedenborg, heavenly marriage would be no more, uh, no mere union of souls. It would include sexual intercourse. He says that the delights of which will be heightened since angelic perception and sensation are much more exquisite than human perception and sensation. So it's a it's a very it's it, his view of heaven is very, very highly sexualized. Interesting. Okay. I think maybe explain to listeners how Joseph Smith would even come into contact with Swedenborg. Okay. Um, his his works were were very very influ- influential on the kind of the religious landscape of of nineteenth century America. So his his works can be found. Well, his his ideas and his thoughts and and doctrines influence a whole range of different movements. His influence was seen everywhere um, so you can see it you can see his influence in transcendentalism at brook farm in spiritualism uh, the free love movement uh, in the craze for communitarian experiments faith healing mesmerism medical cults uh, amongst intellectuals so so like there was a there was a debate between ralph waldo emerson and it was i believe it was george Bush's great 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 grandfather who converted to to Swedenborgian thought, um, and this was highly publicised. Uh, so so this was something that, that a lot of people would have known about um, around sort of New York, uh, around the New York area. So there was there was things like that, that 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 went on. There was also a Revolutionary War printer who called Francis Bailey who started printing Swedenborg's books and pamphlets. And they were they were found all over the place. They they were they were distributed all over the place. Uh, so he was so they were found in some really obscure places. But my personal view is that the main the main influence one of the books that he had or his family had while he was growing up was Sibley's. The Smith family owned a copy of Ebenezer Sibley's A New and Complete Illustration of the Occult Sciences. And in that, there's a there's an outline of a lot of Swedenborg's ideas. One person who's who's written a little bit about that was um, Mike Quinn. So he's he he wrote a little bit about this this book that um, that the Smith family owned. Apparently, it 
it was instrumental in the a lot of their sort of magical practices uh, prior to the founding of the church. So that, that this book, yeah, like I said, it, it contains a, a sort of an outline of, of Swedenborg's thought. So he could have come into contact through it that way. One of the main influences, in my personal opinion, is Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon, when he when he joined the church, he brought um, a lot of experience with him. So he's very he was a very well read man, especially in um, on the subject of religion. But he had also he brought with him an in depth knowledge of of somebody called George Rapp. Um, so he was an alchemical philosopher and leader of a, of a German Hermetic sect uh, that settled in Western Pennsylvania, called the the Harmony Society. And Rapp and his followers practiced a form of esoteric Christianity and mysticism. But that, I mean, they they practiced celibacy, so that was slightly different. But they were very very much influenced by the writings of Burma and Swedenborg. So in their library, it it contains books by all sorts of different people. But one of those people was obviously um, Swedenborg, uh, and and Rigdon uh, was uh, like I said, he was associated with with um, with George Rapp and that that group but not only that alexander campbell he wrote he, he wrote a number of periodicals so and in two instances both rigdon and swedenborg uh, were both mentioned in the same issue so obviously rigdon was um, was a campbellite minister wasn't he before he he joined the church he was very 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 well acquainted with with um, alexander campbell and um, so, so, so there's a lot of these ideas that were floating around, and they, they, they were obviously discussed within the within the sort of the Campbellite movement. And so he would have brought with him those ideas. But it's it's not long after Rigdon joins the church that Joseph Smith has um, has his vision of the the three degrees of glory. So, you know, I think there's a there's a distinct shift in in Joseph Smith's theology as Rigdon comes in. But that doesn't mean that those influences weren't there before Rigdon joined the church, because I think they were, but but they, they could have come in in a lot of different ways, just because these ideas were, were really floating around in, in all kinds of different ways. So Swedenborg's thought could have come to him either directly or indirectly um, through a number of different sources. Uh, but I do think Rigdon was, um, Sidney Rigdon was, was one of the main influences there, personally. Let me ask you this. Uh, your overarching research on Joseph Smith, drawing from all these influences, not just mm-hmm. Swedenborg, but do you see Joseph being influenced by the idea of marriage and polygamy and family from other influences as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes. There's, oh, see, this is this is where... I'm a little bit reluctant to speak about it, to be honest, um, just because my research is very, very early on. But I mean, the, b- between me and you, Lindsay, I think personally he was very heavily influenced by uh, Western sexual mysticism. So there's, I, there was ideas uh, that were floating around at the time, especially from uh, the Kabbalah, that, how, how can I put it? They were... It sort of focused on the the sexual union of of man and wife, um, but there's also a, a polygamous aspect to that. Yeah, it's very very highly sexualized, but it's but it, the the point was that sort of sex and polygamy brought you closer to the divine. Yeah, there's there's a bit of that, but I need to do and, some more work on it. Um, and so this comes this Sorry? comes out of the Jewish mystic tradition. 
Um, some of it, yeah, but I mean, the the problem that you've got with Joseph Smith is obviously because he borrows from from a lot of different sources. He he weaves everything together, so it's very difficult sometimes just to tease the the influences out. It, it's but but it's definitely there. But yeah, I've, I've personally I've got to still do a bit more work on that. So. Well, good. We'll we'll have you back on when you when you have more of that. <laughs> um, do you? Is there anything else you want to say on this topic with the influences before I let you go? Yeah, they're just just with with. There's probably. Did you remember the um, the vision that that I that I mentioned in in my um, presentation? Oh yes, it, yeah. Talk about this. Okay, so Swedenborg recorded a vision that he had. In, and then you can find this in the, the Conjugal Love, his book, The Conjugal Love. But he saw uh, an angel that talking to guests um, at, at, at a wedding, and so he 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 goes around and he introduces he introduces people to to the the wedding couple. And so there was a so it says in his vision afterwards, the conducting angel talked with the guests about his ten companions, acquainting them how he was commissioned to, to introduce them. And he shewed them the magnificent things contained in the prince's palace and other wonders, and how they had dined at the table with him, and afterwards had conversed with the wise ones of the society. And he said, that their pleasure may be further augmented. Let me introduce them to you. So he introduced them, and they entered into discourse together. Then a certain wise one among the, mar the marriage guests said, Do you understand the meaning of what you have seen? They replied, But little. And then they asked him, why was the bridegroom, who is now a husband, dressed in that particular manner? He answered, because the bridegroom, now a husband, represented the Lord, and the bride, who is now a wife, represented the church. For marriages in heaven represent the marriage of the Lord with the church. This is the reason why he wore a mitre on his head and was dressed in a robe, tunic and ephod like Aaron, and why the bride had a crown on her head and wore a mantle like a queen. But tomorrow they will be dressed differently because this represents representate representation lasts no longer than today. So, so that's obviously brings up certain images there of, of um, maybe temple practices, especially kind of the sealing ceremony that we have in the temple. So that might that that might be an interesting link that people might find there. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, Sheldon, thank you so much for. Uh, agreeing to do this he agreed to do this last minute as is my way so thank you <laughs> thank you for coming on and hopefully when you have more in your research we'd love to hear more about it oh absolutely no problem so as you can see swedenborg is definitely an influence on joseph smith or at least a consideration another one of those influences is jacob cochran he was an early preacher in the 19th century. He was um, sort of a restorationist, too. He believed he was restoring the apostolic church, Christian church, which was, as we see, a popular sentiment at the time. He was a miracle worker and did interesting things like what they called the reaping, which is sort of like a shaker-like dance where they would move and they would wave their arms, almost like a mosh pit of today where you would reap your arms back and forth. And it was kind of violent and it was supposed to uh, sort the wheat and the chaff. And it was this holy dancing that they did. And Cochrane really has been called by some scholars as the John the Baptist of Mormonism because he is the one that sort of introduces, at least as we know to Joseph Smith's associates, the idea of spiritual wifery. Now, spiritual wifery, of course, 
Joseph Smith will later delineate as a difference between plural marriage. The principle is different than spiritual wifery. John C. Bennett, Joseph Smith's once good friend and then later bitter enemy practices spiritual wifery. And that's different than Joseph Smith's polygamy. And there's a distinction. But Jacob Conkren brings up this idea of spiritual wifery. And he, of course, is influenced by the free love movement, which Sheldon Kent just talked about. But he does have this idea of communal living. In fact, he was one of the main influences on some of the biggest, most influential early members of the Mormon church. A lot of Mormon missionaries were sent to make converts out of a group of Conkernites that followed Jacob Conkren in Maine as early as 1832. So they're over trying to convert these Conkernites in Saco, Maine. We know that some of the earliest apostles were in attendance. John C. Bennett was was there. He was the one that sort of introduced the term spiritual wifery to Mormonism from the Conkernites and had many female and possibly male partners. And there were other apostles that were very heavily involved. In fact, Jacob Conkern goes into hiding in around 1830 to escape the persecution he's, he's getting for practicing polygamy. And Mormons at the time are holding several conferences right in the center of Conkernism in 1834. And at the second conference that, they, that the Mormons hold, there are 12 newly ordained Mormon apostles that attend there, including Brigham Young. And this is where Brigham Young meets and sort of starts dating Augusta Adams Cobb, who was a married woman and who was also a Conkernite. And of course, she becomes one of his very first plural wives. They also, you know, spend a lot of time seeing their practices and their doctrines. They would have had a lot in common. Uh, Orson Hyde was also there, as well as uh, Samuel Smith, Joseph Smith's younger brother. And so they are hearing these Conkernite ideas and getting introduced to what communal living can look like, including the sharing of spouses. Unfortunately for Conkern, rumors of polygamy became more and more pervasive. And he was eventually, Jacob Conkern was uh, eventually charged with the crime of uh, fornication and lewdness and adultery. And he was sent to prison for four years and he died shortly after that. But we start to see this idea, the rumors of plural marriage that Jacob Conkern has start to be transferred to the Mormons right after. And I don't think it's any coincidence because, you know, the Mormons are hanging out with Jacob Conkern in 35. Uh, now they have these apostles and converts from the Conkernite church, like Augusta Cobb, 36, 37, 38, enter Fanny Alger. We start to see some doors opening for the doctrine of plurality. And of course, John C. Bennett in this time would be would be heavily experimenting, if you will, with the idea of spiritual wifery. So it makes sense that the rumors would transfer over. So going back to the Book of Mormon and how the Book of Mormon all fits into this with Jacob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about what, how Orson Pratt talks about these scriptures in Jacob forbidding polygamy. Now, of course, Orson Pratt has an interesting relationship with Mormonism. Remember when he's first introduced to the doctrine of plural wives, he's on a mission to Palestine. He comes home to find his wife entangled with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith accuses her of being with John C. Bennett. Orson Pratt feels suicidal. He writes a suicide note. It's all very dramatic. But by 1852, he's completely converted to the principal and goes on a PR mission to promote plural marriage. But here's how Orson Pratt would later explain this sort of inconsistency to outsiders. 
about, you know, the Book of Mormon forbidding polygamy. He says this in the Journal of Discourses 6, 351. Quote, the Book of Mormon, therefore, is the only record professing to be divine which condemns plurality of wives as being a practice exceedingly abominable before God. But even that sacred book makes an exception to substance as follows, quote, except I, the Lord, command my people. The same Book of Mormon and the same article that commanded of the Nephites that they should not marry more than one wife made an exception. Let this be understood, unless I, the Lord, shall command them. We can draw the conclusions from this, that there were some things not right in the sight of God, unless he should command them. We can draw the same conclusion from the Bible, that there were many things which the Lord would not suffer his children to do, unless he particularly commanded them to do them. Now, there is also an interesting thing that happens later on with uh, Joseph F. Smith in the Smoot hearings. And now remember, the Smoot hearings are what happens when the government comes in to prosecute Mormon plural marriage. Reed Smoot is trying to become a senator in the United States government, and he is put on trial for polygamy. And so they have this, this really interesting exchange. And I'm going to read this from Joseph F. Smith. Okay, so this is Joseph F. Smith being questioned by the chairman in the trial. The chairman is reading from the Book of Mormon. He reads, quote, Or cursed be the land for their sakes. And Joseph F. Smith says, Still further, if you please. Keep reading, he says. Chairman says, I do not want to read the whole book. And Joseph F. Smith says, You have to read the context to find out what it means. And the chairman says, I will allow you to read it in explanation. And Smith says, if you are kind enough to pass me the book, I will do so. The chairman says, yes, in a moment. Was that doctrine overruled or annulled by the revelation of polygamy? Mr. Smith says, no, sir. The chairman says, it was not. Mr. Smith says, no, sir. If you will be kind enough to let me have the book, I will show you. The chairman says, I want to know when that doctrine of the Mormon Bible was repudiated. And Mr. Smith says, like I mentioned earlier, it is not the Mormon Bible. It's the Book of Mormon. The chairman says, well, the Book of Mormon, you know what I mean. When was that repudiated or modified in any way and by whom? And Mr. Smith says, if you will permit me, I will read a little further. And the chairman says, certainly. He hands him the book. And Joseph F. Smith reads, quote, Wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. All you need to do, sir, is to read the whole thing, and it explains itself. The revelation to Joseph Smith does not repeal this. It is simply a commandment of the Lord to him, and received by him, and accepted by him to enter into plural marriage by his law and by his commandment, and not by their own volition. And the chairman responds with, then you construe that which you have read as the commandment of the Lord to practice polygamy when, and Joseph F. Smith interrupts and says, when he commands it. The chairman repeats when he commands it. Mr. Smith says, that is exactly what the words say. And the chairman says, you have revelations from him frequently. And Joseph F. Smith says, yes, sir, that is correct. And here we have this idea developed that it is completely, you know, compatible with the scriptures that when the Lord commands it, it is commanded. Now, remember the Smoot hearings are at the turn of the century when polygamy is now supposed to end. And that's going to come into context later on. Because in the frontier period, this whole idea of Jacob II and the Book of Mormon gets a little muddy. As I quoted with Orson Pratt, there's this idea that 
maybe frontier Mormons saw this idea of when he commands it more of not it's going to go away from the earth and come during certain periods of time, but you have to practice it the right way. And that is the interpretation that frontier Mormons would have taken most likely from Jacob too, that it's not about it being practiced at the right time, more that it has to be practiced in the right way with the correct authority. As I'm going to point out, many early converts, including Orson Pratt and Lyman Johnson and Brigham Young, report that plural marriage was a true principle and that it had to be practiced. In fact, early saints before, you know, this revelation, the, you know, before the 1840s when Joseph Smith really starts marrying a lot of women, many saints would claim that they had heard about plural marriage. Mosiah Hancock reported that his father was taught about plural marriage in 1832. But of course, we don't really see it show up in LDS Mormonism till a lot later. Now, in 1835, the Doctrine and Covenants actually prohibits polygamy. And in the 1844 version of the Doctrine and Covenants, it also prohibits polygamy and, you know, declares monogamy the one true way. And if you haven't yet listened to episode 10 of this podcast, stop this episode right now and go listen to that first. That's going to give you all the context you need. You can't be listening to this episode without knowing episode 10 because it's going to talk about the conflicts of what Joseph Smith would say publicly and what he was doing privately. Which brings us to another church publication. Now we've talked about the Book of Mormon. We've talked about, you know, Jacob, the chapter in it. Now I'm going to talk about another publication called The Articles on Marriage. And it's basically an early version of DNC, our Doctrine and Covenants, Section 101. And it was contained in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And it actually remains in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. Now, if you really want to pay attention to why all of these dates I'm throwing out are important is because the dates are important. The fact that this article of marriage remains in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876, when all the saints are over in Utah, Brigham Young will die in a year. This is important stuff. The Articles of Marriage was printed in 1834, and in it, in part of the section, it has a little part that's relevant to polygamy. It says, quote, Inasmuch as the Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornification and polygamy— We declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except in case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again, end quote. Now, if you are an LDS Mormon, go pull out your Doctrine and Covenants, look up section 101 and look for the word polygamy. That's a fun challenge. Now, Perry Porter, who I've had on the podcast before, he describes the creation of the Articles of Marriage as such, quote, he says, The date is the 17th of August, 1835, when Section 134 was approved by Church General Assembly to be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, back then, they used to vote in the sections um, into Scripture, like the Community of Christ still does today. They come and they say, here's a new revelation. Here's a new section to the Doctrine and Covenants. They read the revelation and everybody votes on it. We don't do that in LDS Mormonism anymore. It's this idea of common consent. We sort of have a different interpretation. But they were doing this for section 134. They vote that in and after this action, this is back to Perry Porter, they vote this in and after the action, W.W. Feltz presented an article, not a revelation on marriage, and Oliver Cowdery won on government and laws in general, both of which were ordered printed in the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. 
There was also printed in the book a series of seven lectures on faith that had previously been delivered before a theological class in Kirtland, so that the Doctrine and Covenants then comprised the Articles of Faith, seven in number, the two Articles of Marriage, and Government and a Collection of Revelations, the last forming the body of the greater book. And this comes from the history of the church. Now, B.H. Roberts would sort of be the one that says the Articles on Marriage is not a revelation. He talks about this later when he talks when he writes the history of the church in his footnotes. And we'll talk about why B.H. Roberts sort of changes his mind on that later on. Here's what the history of the church says about the Articles of Marriage. Quote, According to the custom of all civilized nations, marriage is regulated by laws and ceremonies. Therefore, we believe that all marriages in this Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints should be solemnized in a public meeting or feast prepared for that purpose, and that the solemnization should be performed by a presiding high priest, high priest, bishop, elder, or priest, not even prohibiting those persons who are desirous to get married of being married by other authority. We believe that this is not right to prohibit members of the church from marrying outside of the church, if it be their determination so to do. But such persons will be considered weak in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage should be celebrated with prayer and thanksgiving. At the solemnization, the the persons to be married standing together, the man on the right and the woman on the left, shall be addressed by the person officiating, as he shall be directed by the Holy Spirit. And if there be no legal objections, he shall say, calling each by name, You both mutually agree to be each other's companions, husband and wife, observing the legal rights belonging to his condition, that is, keeping yourselves holy for each other and from all others during your lives. And when they have both answered yes, he shall pronounce them husband and wife in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the virtue of the laws of the country and the authority vested in him. May God add his blessings and keep you to fulfill your covenants from henceforth and forever. Amen. The clerk of every church should keep a record of all marriages solemnized in his branch of all legal contracts of marriage made before the person baptized in this church should be held sacred and fulfilled. Inasmuch as the Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband, except in the case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again. It is not right to persuade a woman to be baptized contrary to the will of her husband, Neither is it lawful to influence her to leave her husband. All children are bound by the law to obey their parents and to influence them to embrace any other religious faith or be baptized or leave their parents without their consent is unlawful and unjust. We believe that husbands, parents, and masters who exercise control over their wives, children, and servants and prevent them from embracing the truth will have to answer for that sin. End quote. So that is what they incorporate as section 101. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. Then President Oliver Cowdery, you know, does the following article on governments and laws in the church, which all receives a unanimous vote. So that is what the Articles of Marriage is. Now, remember, that remains in the Doctrine and Covenants for the LDS version until 1876. And I believe it's still portions of it still exist in the Community of Christ or RLDS version which is how saints would have understand monogamous marriage. It would have been performed with the ceremony that I just read to you. So what is the Doctrine and Covenants? I'm going to tell you basically how a BYU professor, uh, Peter Crawley, describes it. He says, quote, The book's preface is signed by Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and F.G. Williams on February 17, 1835, alludes to Quote, the aversion in the minds of some against receiving anything purporting to be articles of religious faith, and defends the book as a needed statement of the beliefs of the Latter-day Saints who have been so widely misrepresented. 
Years later, David Whitmer, in his address to all believers in Christ, described his opposition to the Doctrine and Covenants because it enunciated a creed for the Latter-day Saints. The first main part of the book contained the seven lectures on faith, and these lectures delivered before the School of the Elders in Kirtland during the preceding winter cover such basic doctrines as the necessity and effect of faith, the attributes of God in Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, man's relationship to God, and the nature of salvation, with supporting citations from the Bible, Book of Mormon, and in some cases, the Book of Commandments. Three of these lectures appeared earlier in print, and the first as a broadside, and then the fifth and sixth in May of 1835 in The Messenger and Advocate. Exactly who authored these lectures is not clear. Although Sidney Rigdon is a possibility, in any case, their final form bears the influence of Joseph Smith, who, in his history, remarks, quote, During the month of January 1835, I was engaged in the School of Elders, and in preparing the lectures of theology for publication in the Doctrine and Covenants, 77, the lectures on faith, were maintained in the various LDS editions of the Doctrine and Covenants until 1921. The second part of the main book contained a hundred revelations spanning the period of July 1828 to March 28, 1835. As sections 1 through 4 and 6 through 100 with two sections erroneously numbered 66, the minutes of the organization of the First High Council, February 17, 1835, and section 5, an article on marriage and an article on government and laws in the general sections of section 101 and 102 and the minutes of the August 17, 1835 General Assembly. The 65 chapters in the Book of Commandments are reprinted in the Doctrine and Covenants with substantial changes consistent with those made in the Revelations and Reprinting, Evening, and the Morning Star. Ten of the chapters in the Book of Commandments are combined into three sections of the Doctrine and Covenants so that 58 sections actually comprise the portion originally published in the Book of Commandments. Traditionally, the articles on marriage and government have been attributed to Oliver Cowdery. These were read at the General Assembly of August 17, 1835, and accepted as part of the Doctrine and Covenants. The article on marriage appeared in all LDS editions until 1876, while the article on government is still included as Section 134. The minutes of the General Assembly occur only in the 1835 edition. Apparently, the changes in the printed revelations troubled a certain few of the brethren at a meeting of the High Council at Far West, April 24, 1837, David W. Patton charged Lyman White with teaching false doctrines, among that the Book of Doctrine and Covenants was a celestial law and the Book of Commandments was a celestial law. White was censured for these teachings and directed to acknowledge his heir to the churches where he had preached, end quote. So that is basically a long description of what the Doctrine and Covenants used to be. It used to be the lectures on faith. Then it had, you know, a hundred revelations, some that came from the Book of Commandments, some included Section 101, which is, you know, that we don't practice polygamy. And then we have, of course, Section 134, which is the government thing that um, they voted in. Okay, that is part one of this episode. We're going to go to part two, where we're going to talk about the actual revelation, the 1843 revelation. So this is going to set you up to understand the books, and now we're going to get into the history of how this very controversial revelation appears in our scripture. So we'll talk to you soon. Be sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.